Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, January the 15th, 2024. Uh, Martin Luther King Day in the United States, a public holiday, MLK being perhaps quint the most quintessential of American characters, American writers, speakers, political figures, individuals, uh, and in an odd way then maybe MLK Day is the quintessential American festival, warts and all for America. Um, and uh, it's a good day to be talking about upcoming books with my old friend Beth Ann Patrick, the book critic of the Los Angeles Times and a woman who knows more about books, I think, than anyone else in the world. A happy New Year, Beth Ann. Haven't seen you for a few uh, for a few days. You were away, but you're back. Yes, we absolutely. Re-energized, ready for the new year, and you've got ten upcoming books that you're excited about, uh, mm -hmm. five works of fiction, five works of nonfiction. And given it's MLK Day, perhaps we might begin with a couple of books about race. The first, um, You Get What You Pay For, Essays by Morgan Parker, a nonfiction book. It's the only nonfiction book of essays. Um, mm -hmm. tell, me, tell me a little bit more about Morgan Parker and, and why you think this is an important book. Well, first of all, I want to say um, MLK Junior Day is such an important holiday. And I think you're right, Andrew, in that it is something quintessentially American, warts and all. Someone recently said something to me about, have you been to Wittenberg, you know, where Martin Luther King is from? And I thought, mm. oh, my goodness, we need more education. It's not where Martin Luther King Jr. is from. Uh, he was named, of course, after Martin Luther. Well, that's quite an achievement that they know Wittenberg. Was this in America? I know. <laughs> But, uh, and so Morgan Parker is someone whose name I think a lot of readers should know. Morgan Parker is a fairly young, incredibly accomplished Black woman poet, um, queer Black woman poet. And uh, I think that Morgan is such a talent. Uh, Magical Negro, her collection won the National Book Critics Circle Award. She's also written a collection called There Are More Beautiful Things Than Beyonce. And You Get What You Pay For is Morgan Parker's first collection of essays. And it's um, an incredible, incredibly taught and tight and focused collection in terms of language. Uh, for instance, one of the things uh, Morgan Parker says is, you want to provide reparations? How about free therapy? Uh, she does not mince words. She uses words beautifully. Free therapy for everyone or just for people? No, this is for everyone. This is uh, something that really- Good therapists, although someone's got to pay them. Yeah, uh, this is about therapy, certainly for people of color, but also for the people of non-color, for the white people uh, out there who really don't understand why people of color might be concerned with reparations. And I want to say that um, Parker talks a great deal about how she's not the only one who has to put up 
with feelings of anger and confusion and rage anymore. You know, so she says, what does it feel like for you, another Black woman, to hear me speaking? What does it feel like for you, a white woman who doesn't know the depth of how we feel, to hear me saying that to your face at a reading? So it's about public discourse. It's about getting out there and saying, these are things that are real. These are things that are not always spoken about in the the agora, in the public forum. In and polite we, society. Yeah, um, in polite society. Perhaps one of the reasons why MLK Day is such a, at least in a contemporary sense, um, American festival or holiday is because not everyone agrees with it. Some people don't even consider it a holiday. Other people consider it the highest and holiest day of the year. So perhaps that reflects it. What about Morgan Parker herself? What are her politics? Is this likely to be a book that will enrage people? Will it bring people together? Is she uh, trying I, to do that? I think it will. Uh, and this is what Parker wants. I think it will fuel debate. And look at the title and look at the cover art. You get what you pay for. Who paid for uh, enslaved people? They paid for it. They did the work. They endured the suffering. However, white people thought that they were paying for labor for their estates, plantations, factories. Does she though address all the, and I don't want to get into the whole reparations thing, but all the complexity of race and slavery, given that there are lots of people of different color skins in America who, who for one reason, historically or rather, didn't experience slavery. How, how are we supposed to deal with that? Uh, that is something that is probably, um, Parker would say, outside her purview. This is a political book and a public book, but it also is um, a book it's an experiential book. It's about what she has gone through. And Morgan Parker is also a woman who has experienced deep depression. So when she says free therapy, she's not just being flippant. She knows what it's like to go through um, yeah. mental illness. And uh, so I would say that this book, you know, it, I don't want to say, Andrew, that it stays in its lane because certainly. Parker is trying to, you know, jump ahead and get people talking, but she also knows what she hasn't experienced and she's not trying to be. She knows what she doesn't know. And but then uh, you, you yourself have just written a book about mental illness. So you're right. all too familiar. Uh, right. Finally, on the, 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 the Parker book, you say the cover art's astonishing. I agree. You might not everyone's going to be watching this, some people will be listening. How would you describe it? It's it's an astonishing image on the front of the book. It is an astonishing image. So it's a very professional-looking woman of color who is wearing a suit jacket of sorts, maybe not a manly suit jacket, more of a feminine suit jacket, um, looking at a book, um, holding a pen and on top of this photograph's shoulders is an incredibly detailed um, line drawing of boulders and rocks and heavy, sharp, um, very uncomfortable looking uh, burdens. So it's a lot about- Yeah, you might imagine um, 
It could be of uh, certain Claudine Gay, the former chancellor at Harvard, and that's another story and probably another book. No doubt books are going to be written about that. And then uh, just to honor uh, the great MLK, um, there's also a number of fiction books, of course, inevitably touching on race and identity. This one in particular uh, by Percival Everett. James, tell us about this book. Well, this is incredible because Percival Everett is on everyone's mind right now because American fiction has just come out to great acclaim. And this movie, based on one of his novels and Erasure, is about um, the racism that can happen in our cultural discourse, specifically in American literary discourse, and how people can uh, be erased, but also then make their mark in different ways. And what I love about James is it is Percival Everett who has written so many great novels, including The Trees. Uh, I, I'm going to miss a whole bunch of them now, but this one is something he announced a couple of years ago. He said he was going to write a retelling of Huckleberry Finn. Now, we all know in America that Huckleberry Finn has been problematic for a while. The figure of Jim, the enslaved man who goes down the Mississippi River with Huck on a raft, has been um, seen by many people as something that should be taken out of the book, or if it's left in the book, it should be explained further. So whatever it does, and I think this is brilliant, is he changes up the perspective entirely and has Jim or James narrate the story. And I am going to go way out on a limb. Well, no, it's not way out on a limb. This is the book to read in 2024. Are you going to say, you remember you, we, we did the uh, the whole thing with 1984 and Julia, is this... Yep. You you argued controversially, even in your LA Times review, that yes. um, uh, that um, that uh, Julia was better than 1984. Is James better than Huck Finn? Oh, that's such a that's a great great question, Andrew. And I am going to say this is one of the things about doing a rewrite. It it's not that it's easy for it to be better. It's that you have this interesting material to work with and you have a chance to shape it yourself. And Everett is a superb stylist and very, very interesting. And so one of the things he's able to do is take his narrator, James, and have him explain some of the things that make the character that Twain created more and make things more clear. For example, James or Jim says to us, white folks expect us to sound a certain way and it can only help if we don't disappoint them. So in other words, he says, this is why, you know, there's dialect in my speech when I talk to Huck Finn. It's because I am pandering to white people. I am not the plaything, the marionette of a white writer. And I think that almost makes it better because it makes it more interesting and richer. Uh, Twain was writing very much in his time. And I don't know if Twain 
was as concerned with Jim as he was with Huck. Personally, well, certainly, you know, thinking of Orwell, Julia, and uh, Winston Smith, that was yeah. the case. We did a whole show uh, on Huckleberry Finn with uh, uh, the uh, a C-SPAN um, presenter who who made a series about the ten great American books, in which they mm -hmm. included Huck Finn. Speaking of MLK Day, uh, MLK was, of course, male. And just as uh, Huck Finn is controversial in terms of race, MLK has his own controversies when it comes to women. Um, one book that uh, is addressed to that issue, you're highlighting in your nonfiction, it should actually be called Who's Afraid of Judith Butler? But instead <laughs> it's called Who's Afraid of Gender? by Judith Butler, who is probably much more terrifying to many people than gender itself. Tell us about <laughs> Judith Butler in this book. First of all, I want to say this is just anecdotal. Um, actually, you know, I went to Smith College and uh, I lived in a house that had a small faculty office building right in front of it. And that building, it's a little yellow house that used to be there. I don't know if it still is, was where they filmed the Elizabeth Taylor, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf movie. Mm. And so I've been thinking about that, um, that play and that movie for years and years. And actually, Judith Butler was very important to my graduate work because uh, Gender Trouble, which is probably her most famous, their, excuse me, their most famous work, came out in the 90s when I was in graduate school. And it's an absolutely important work. And one of the reviews for Who's Afraid of Gender actually called this book a master class. And I thought, I wonder what Judith Butler thinks about that, a master class. Yeah, mistress class. But a mistress certainly... class, but it, Judith Butler might wish there were a third word. So in this book, um, Butler, who is a philosopher and a gender studies scholar, is arguing against all gender constructs, but particularly the gender constructs that... Um, the right, especially the very conservative religious right, uses to prop up ideas about what it means to be a man, a woman, how there should be only heterosexual marriage. Um, so Butler is so incredibly smart and incredibly rational that they are able to pick things apart so well that if you could get everyone to read this book, then I think you would have so many more people who understand that what we under, what we decide to understand as a gender really is almost, it, it's almost completely made up by human beings. It's co-constructed by nature, nurture, and culture. Okay, there's so much has been maybe I'm being a little skeptical here, uh, <laughs> Beth Ann. But, um, I mean, so much has been written about this, and Butler herself, or itself, or however you want to call uh, or want to name them. Um, I mean, she's defined all this. Is she saying anything different? Uh, I do think what she is saying specifically here is. There have been many times in history where institutions or 
groups with very well-defined agendas have decided that there can only be this kind of gender or that kind of gender, and there can't be anything queer or anything that is fluid. And Butler supports this with showing how different cultures in different times have actually tried to define gender as only this and only that. It it just doesn't work. And that's what I think she's saying that's new or that perhaps hasn't been discussed enough is that gender, you know, isn't just something that came about in the last 10 years. You know, it's not just now that gender fluidity is being talked about in society. There are different cultures, countries, you know, groups of people who have all kinds of different terms and words for human beings who don't fit in one gender slot or the other, um, excuse me for using slot in this discussion. Uh, we don't um, any vulgarity, this is- That's right, that's right. But I think it is, I think it is a new, a new depth and fullness of discussion. Um, and it oh, does, it's, a, it's a deep slot, shall we say. Yes, yes. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it, Andrew. <laughs> well, we got to take a break. Uh, I think our we're going to lose our sponsors. But we got to at least try and thank them. Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics who publish great essays. Uh, some of them vulgar, some not. I'm going to run a short feature on Liberties and then we'll be back on MLK Day with Beth Ann Patrick, America's book critic, book reader, to talk more upcoming, exciting nonfiction and fiction. So we'll be back in a second. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with my old friend, Beth Ann. She's not old, of course, but she's an old friend. Beth Ann Patrick, the book critic of the LA Times about exciting upcoming books on MLK Day. I mean, I suggested that MLK Day is the, 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 the most American holiday, maybe the most real or the realest, which is no such word. And there's a novel called Real Americans by Rachel Kong, which I think is about everything except perhaps real Americans. Well, what's interesting about this book? Well, I, I love this book. Um, Goodbye Vitamin was Rachel Kong's debut novel, and it was really great. It was about a woman caring for her elderly father who had Alzheimer's. Terrific, terrific novel. And, you know, not all sophomore novels are something you want to talk about, but Real Americans is something everyone should be talking about. It reminds me most of Mbolo Mbwe's Behold the Dreamers, which came out mm, probably five or six years ago, maybe longer. I'm not that great with dates, but this is about background and what makes us family as well as what makes us American. So 
it's a 15 year old boy. His name is Nick Chen. And his mother, Lily, had um, immigrated to the United States from China and fallen in love with um, a Chinese American man named Matthew. But Nick isn't doesn't know his biological father when he's growing up and he knows his mother has some secrets she isn't telling him so he decides he wants to find out about them and it's a multi-generational novel about how identity factors into the American dream can you have that dream can you fully realize it if you don't know everything about who you are and what does it mean to, you know, to, to, to follow our parents' dreams and to do what a parent who has sacrificed so much, who has given up so much, you know, Lily raises him, does everything for him. And yet Nick still wants to know more about his birth father, which is, of course, very painful for any parent, for any single parent, for any parent who is not in the life of their co-parent anymore. And I love the fact, I don't always pay attention to blurbs, okay? We all know that blurbs are sort of, I used to, Spy Magazine used to call uh, it. Blurbs. I always believe all the blurbs, especially when they're by Arianna Huffington. There you go, there you go. But um, there are a couple of novelists who gave blurbs to real Americans uh, that I really respect. And one of them is Britt Bennett, whose novels I truly adore, The Vanishing Half and The Mothers. And also Ruman Alam, who just had some really interesting um, stuff going on with Leave the World Behind, his move, the adaptation of his novel with Julia Roberts in it. And uh, they are both incredibly fine fiction writers. And I thought if, if they are you know, holding this one up, I think it's, I think it's very strong. I think it's probably also of all the books, the fiction books that I chose for this little preview, the one that is the most traditional. It's the uh, most. Real, real writers and real readers love right. real Americans. So that. <laughs> there you go. I have to admit of all the, I haven't read any, uh, unlike you, I don't read books, but um, <laughs> the one I really like the sound of, which I could fancy reading is I never heard of it or the or the author, Cor and it's got a fascinating title. Corey Farr does social mobility. It's a brilliant title. Tell me about this book. It is a brilliant title, and Isabel Wagner is a brilliant uh, writer. They are so interesting. Wagner's. Uh, I hope I'm saying the name correctly wrote Sterling Carrot Gold, also a great title. And that won the 2021 Goldsmiths Prize. Mm. So this was a highly anticipated sophomore novel. Well, it might not be sophomore. It might be her third or fourth. I'm not sure. But, um, excuse me, not her, their third or fourth. And this is really, really... I think it's, hold on, I think it is the second one. I think it is. Yeah, it is a crazy ride and it's so good. I don't read as much fantasy as perhaps I should, but this almost, it's, it's fantastical, but it's almost, it makes so much sense that it almost didn't read like fantasy to me. It just read like a wonderful, wonderful story. So it's all about, it's just like, so American Fiction by Percival Everett, who wrote James that we were discussing, 
that was a send up of literary life. And so is Corey Fodd. Yeah, that's why I like the sound of it. Yeah. Um, and it so sounds it, a sort of satirical book about. It's so satirical. And an American greed for virtue. I mean, if there's one characteristic of this country, people, everyone seems greedy of, for virtue of one kind or another. It is. And, and it's almost, it's, it's, it's sort of America. It's sort of England. So, um, Corey and their lover Drew live in this very strange, almost uh, Iron Curtain-like country that has words that sound kind of Czech, if you will. Yeah. But um, basically, Corey, you know, wins an award, but doesn't know that they're supposed to claim this spaceship. That's the award, and so they lose the award. And then they have to go on a hunt for it with Drew. What this is all about is Wagner won the Goldsmiths Prize, but couldn't get the actual you know, trophy because we were in the pandemic. And yeah. so it's a send up of literary awards and their value. Of course, um, Wagner got the money, but just not the, the trophy. And it's like this Zeitgeist. Good one. Well, certainly, it's if any really of the publishers really uh, watching or listening, send me the book and send me the author. Love to get them on the show. There you go. Uh, we'll supposed to be doing fiction and nonfiction, but often, of course, that distinction is blurred. Uh, for this book, The Last Fire mm -hmm. Season, a personal and pyro natural history. I I've done some shows on all the fires in California. I, yes. I didn't know about Manjula Martin, but this oh, sounds like a book that's almost too amazing to be true, and yet it's true. I think you need to have Manjula Martin on the show. Oh, we'll um, get her on. Get get them on. We will. Um, so this is subtitled "A Personal and Pyro Natural History," and what I want to emphasize here is that it really is both. It is a memoir. This is not pure reporting. It is about um, Martin's move to California and years loving it and not realizing that fire season was becoming something that was no longer a season. You live in California, Andrew, you understand yeah. this. It's becoming um, a sort of year round uh, a way of life. Is a way of life. Yes. And so what um, Martin does is uh, she talks about various injuries that she's had and frustrating experiences with the healthcare system. And that is not because it is, you know, me and my little problems kind of thing, not that they're little um, in real life. But what she wants to talk about is what it's like to be a vulnerable body in pain and how the earth, how California is a vulnerable body in pain as well. Really beautiful um, book about adapting to new circumstances that you never expected and how stories can start in one genre and then end in another. So for instance, one of the things I love that Martin writes is at first she says things in California for her and her partner felt like a fairy tale. And it does feel like that on some days, but other days when the heat waves creep through the single pane windows and clamp around my neck, when the smoke clouds descend and the firehouse siren sounds, 
it feels like a different genre of story. Yeah, it's interesting that the town that was the epicenter of some of the worst fires was called Paradise. Yeah. Uh, and I did a show a couple of years ago called Paradise on that by a journalist. Another book with a, a smoke and ashes title yes. is indeed called uh, Smoke and Ashes by Amitav Ghosh, uh, Opium's mm -hmm. Hidden History, is a very well-known writer. Yes. This one looks really good. Oh, I think it's it's really excellent. And one of the criticisms that I found of it um, when I was looking around is, oh, he goes too far into things. But that's what I really loved, okay? This is a travelogue, a memoir, a history, uh, a political book, an economic no, And real book. good non nonfiction. Uh, it's, of it's course... Uh, the, the subtitle is Opium's Hidden Histories, yes. which uh, gives away, I think, the cross-disciplinary nature of the narrative. It looks, um, uh, is, is it up there with the Gersh's best work? I don't think so. However, I do think in a culture as we are right now, that really still is so fixed on, I mean, from the Nick to Ozark, to Snow, I think was another TV show. We talk a lot about opium products and uh, think a lot about them in our culture. And I think that this is probably not his best because it is um, something, while he was working on a trilogy, the Ibis trilogy, he got involved and went down a rabbit hole about opium, if you will. And one of the reasons it's important is let me tell you, the East India Company, you know, the British East India Company actually had an opium department for a long time. Yeah, we did. Uh, there's an excellent history of, uh, of, uh, of, of the East India Company. And that, that looks like a really good book. I have to get Gosh on the show. Yeah, of, we don't have a lot more time. Um, but uh, a couple of interesting other novels. You Dreamed of Empire. Love Empires. this book. And uh, extinction of uh, Irina Ray. Tell us mm -hmm. about these two. So I'll just be very quick. Um, you Dreamed of Empires is a fabulous hallucinogenic historical novel about Mexico and Cortez's uh, various people. I love the fact that it is much tighter and sparer than you might think an historical novel could be. And there is so much weird, wacky stuff going on, but also historical stuff like um, Europeans encountering chocolate for the first time. Meanwhile, the Aztecs actually thinking, why do they worship this naked guy hanging from a post? Now, I wonder know? with the hallucinogenics, whether it would fit. I mean, it's obviously a different part of the world from Gauche, but um, the the opium uh, narrative. There, there seems to be some some symmetries. It, this seems to be the kind of novel that has been waiting to be written. Did anyone else write a sort of a fictional recreation of Cortez? People must have I done. I don't think so. This is. I mean, it's just so terrific because he gets these two more minor characters and they are what make the book come alive to me this um you know this th there's a bureaucrat and a princess and it, it's a fantastic mashup so i think it's really interesting is it magical i mean is it sort of traditional latin american magical fiction or is it 
post-magical fiction. It's post-magical, I think. I think it's more experimental, um, po-po-mo uh, uh, historical fiction. And it's fiction, it's fiction, of course, but it also is historical fiction. So it's Absolutely, absolutely. And then this other book, uh, Extinction mm -hmm. of... of Irene Ray, tell me about this. This is, book. This is important because um, Jennifer Croft is one of the most talented literary translators working today. And uh, she's also married to another talented literary translator, Boris Draljuk. And uh, she takes on the idea of what happens when a whole bunch of translators go to the house of this great writer in Poland and the writer is gone, just missing completely. Yeah. And it's very funny. It turns into a bit of a murder mystery. And, you know, one of the things I thought was was most interesting about it is the translators refer to each other by the language that they work in. So, you know, one is English, one is German, one is French, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, it is a very interesting book. And for anyone, I, I really did pick a lot of books um, for yeah. this first half. Yeah, it's, uh, again, we don't want to pigeonhole, but if, if, um, if you dreamed of empires was post- Latin American magical fiction. The extinction of Irene Ray is certainly post East Central Europe magical fiction in an odd kind of way, isn't it? Definitely, it's um. It reminded me if Olga to Olga Tokarczuk, yeah. you know, wanted to write something that was a little bit of a light read. This is what she would write, and of course, Croft is Tokarczuk's translator. And last but not least, perhaps the best known writer in the in the in 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 this feature, and there are a lot of well-known writers, a man who is both very distinguished in his fiction and non-fiction, and in his life itself, a man who's more than just a writer, Salman Rushdie's knife, meditations after an attempted murder. Certainly, writers, um, Beth Ann, as you know, get criticized for taking advantage of stuff that happens in other people's lives. Is this a book where he takes advantage of what happened in his life, the assassination attempt? I would say almost the opposite. It is what happened in his life at the Chautauqua in 2022. But as Rushdie himself says, he could not move on and write anything else without grappling with what happened. He was severely in injured. He lost the use of his left eye. Um, it was mm. really terrifying. In fact, uh, I had a friend who was at the Chautauqua in um, their room and their mother was at the event and texted. And uh, the friend called me immediately and said, you know, this sounds like it is, it is simply horrific. It, everyone is terrified. And part of what happened, and this is why it's important to have this book, is we still have to think about what does it mean for public events to go on now? Now, of course, we know Rushdie has been under this crazy fatwa. And when I say crazy fatwa, I am not in any way trying to be disrespectful to yeah, be careful. You know, anyway, be, I'm being careful. Yes, I'm being careful. Oh, that'd be a fat, fatwa on you. That's right. But here's the thing about a fatwa. Um, it can only be terminated 
by the person who declared it. And so the Ayatollah Khomeini had been the one who declared it and the Ayatollah is now dead. So this fatwa is ongoing and people think- They can't bring him back to life to end this one. <laughs> You know, it's funny, careful. speaking of coming back to life, uh, I was in Munich yesterday and I went to the Hitler Museum or the Nazi Museum. And, you know, in sec during the Second World War, you could marry, as a German woman, you could marry dead men. Yes. And at the ceremony, they would just have the woman and the helmet. So maybe at this end of the fatwa, they could have, what, what did Khomeini wear? Not a helmet, but something else. <laughs> not sure <laughs> i won't even try to to pretend i know but oh my goodness it is uh, but yes i think knife is an important book and i am so and is it classically rushdie-esque if there's such a word is it, it, it rushdie is, it is it is um it is very oh what's the best word a key He's pretty, pretty um, low key um, in many ways. And so this is not self-sensationalizing at all. It is very thoughtful.